and welcome to One Week, One Year, a podcast where we watch and discuss a year of film history every other week, starting from 1895, uh, the dawn of cinema. This week is 1921. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Ellie. I am a film projectionist, and joining me as always is... I'm Glenn Covell, a filmmaker. And we are both podcasters. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> uh... And I want to mention that I, because I, I have been forgetting to the last couple episodes, that uh, this is a podcast that you can listen to because we describe all of this visual stuff that's happening uh, uh, with words. But it's also a YouTube show uh, where you can uh, watch along with clips uh, from the movies that we're talking about as we're discussing them. Uh, it's a nice visual component for silent film, which is all of what we're talking about right now. Uh, so you're not really missing out on anything, uh, by hearing us yammer over it. Uh, <laughs> Glenn, how, how are you doing? What's up? Um, cold. I'm doing cold. It's you're very cold, cold in New York City today. Yeah. It's like, I think it's like 12 degrees out. Uh, earlier last week we hit a, like, negative eight, uh, like, in the, in the daytime. <laughs> Yikes. It was, it, yeah, it was rough. But it's, get, it's get your, better now. Get your parkas out. Now's the time. I do. My, one of my most expensive purchases recently was a parka uh, that I felt I put on, and it felt like nothing has ever fit me better. But it was hideously expensive. I thought it was on the clearance rack because it was on a rack that said clearance. Uh, and fair then, assumption to make. And I was like, I've got to get this. It's on sale. It's perfect. Uh, and then I brought it over, and he was like, oh, yeah, well, that rack just says clearance, but it's not actually. It's actually ridiculously expensive. Um, what? How is that allowed? <laughs> but I uh, I decided to, after after much internal debate, I decided to get it anyway, because it's kind of like the perfect jacket for me. Yeah. Also, I think a parka is something worth dropping some cash on. Like, a, you know, you want a good one if you're going to have one, I think. This I I saw reviews online saying that all these people are like I found my forever parka. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, yeah, it's cold here too. Um, gearing up for the Colorado Dragon Boat Film Festival. Um, Ooh, the the next film festival in on, on the docket at work. Uh, that's the main cool. things going on for me. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, we are a film history podcast, but we are going to give you a little regular history, uh, give us some context for the era that we're talking about with the news of the year. So take it away, Glenn. The news of the year, 1921. The magician, P.T. Selbit, debuts his grand illusion, sawing a woman in half. The first birth control clinic in the British Empire is opened by Dr. Marie Stopes. After raging for years, the Polish-Soviet war ends, defining the border between the two states. 132 billion gold marks, worth $33 trillion in today's money. That is the amount to be paid out by the Weimar Republic as reparations for their loss in the Great War. White terrorism on Black Wall Street. The city government conspires with racist mobs to organize systematic murder and destruction of the affluent black citizens of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Elsewhere in France... Texas-born Bessie Coleman becomes the first black woman to earn a pilot's license. The Chinese Communist Party is founded, initially allied with the Guomindang, their eventual bitter enemy in the Chinese Civil War. Insulin is discovered by the University of Toronto researchers. 
In the West Virginia Cold Wars, the Battle of Blair Mountain becomes the largest labor uprising in U.S. history. 10,000 armed coal miners fought 3,000 strike breakers and coppers. Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle is implicated but never proven in connection to the death of actress Virginia Rapay, destroying the career of the comedy great. The FTC sues famous players Lasky for violating antitrust laws when they refuse independent films to play in their theaters. Little little movie news at the end there. I'd like to tack on the movie-related stuff toward the end. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's. I feel like we need to talk about the Arbuckle in the room a little bit. Is that a fat joke? <laughs> I I mean it wasn't intended to be, but I guess I mean it's in his name. Yeah. I I I think it's it's uh it's kind of interesting like the the ripple effects of that. Like because not ju- because a bunch of theaters refused to play uh Arbuckle movies after this. It meant that like a bunch of Mabel Norman movies and a bunch of Buster Keaton movies were like taken out of circulation and they're like it hurt it hurt a bunch of people uh just that like worked with him also and also i've noticed just like in recent in the last couple years of like movies about like 20s or 30s hollywood or los angeles anytime there's been in babylon and also in the recent hbo perry mason show there's like very thinly veiled fatty arbuckle like uh, like, uh, like what's analogs. the word? Analog characters, and they're they're always like these like lascivious like creeps, and I like I feel like this Which like is maybe not fair. Well, I don't know because it's like maybe that it maybe he was I don't know, but mm-hmm. um I just think that that is like he is like forever that is like how he is like mostly remembered in like pop culture now, which you know. Maybe unfair, but maybe accurate. It's hard to say. It's unclear. It is. Yeah. It's complicated and ancient. Yeah, <laughs> the the ancientness really makes it hard to like get a clear read on it. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's two 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 scandals down of our big three big scandals, three Hollywood scandals. <laughs> yeah. Well, big three early twenties Hollywood scandals that mm. lead to censorship stuff Hmm. indeed uh for our for our first movies uh in our segment one week one reel um we're gonna go across the ocean and across the continent uh to manhattan and germany for uh why don't we talk about we'll 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 go three thousand miles first okay and we'll we'll uh talk about manhattan manhattan the the New York movie, the New York movie, yeah, <laughs> yeah, pizza bagels and hot dogs, pizza bagels, <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, we love those ba- here. bagel bites, <laughs> classic <laughs> New York treat. <laughs> Totino's pizza rolls. Um, hey, I'll have a Totino or two. Uh, okay, yeah. So Manhattan, it is a uh, um. A city symphony movie, uh, mm. you would Which call it, was a thing at this, or it's the beginning of a thing when this came out. Indeed, um, it is a uh, about ten-ish minute long film of uh, scenes from Manhattan, mostly fairly static shots, uh, with 
uh, poetry about Manhattan from, I believe, a poem called Manhattan, uh, written by Walt Whitman. Mm. It kind of reminded me of, like, certain earlier films that, like, used poetry as their intertitles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, though this one's a little less, like, literal, I guess. Like, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's making all this kind of beautiful imagery out of uh, 1920s Manhattan. Yeah. So the the version of it that I watched had the little sort of like text intro kind of like explaining what the movie was. Um, and it described it as being avant-garde, which I guess it was at the time, but I don't know. It, it reminded me a lot of like early actuality movies mm-hmm. from like the 1890s. And in that sense, I don't, it didn't strike me as particularly avant-garde, I guess. I was sort of like, oh, it's it's one of these again. It's it's maybe like a relatively artful travelogue, a relatively yeah. artful... I mean, because I think the thing that's notable about Manhattan is it's, uh, like, beautiful compositions. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. the, the people that made it were a painter and a photographer, um, so they, they kind of had their eye on... Um, on composition more yeah. more than anything else and just it's like it's a it's a love letter to the city the city <laughs> is a character itself you know? <laughs> one of my least favorite things to say about anything i i hate i hate that uh yeah i don't know i, th- I think it's a you know it, it is a movie that shows a lot of like reverence for manhattan as a place and it lays a lot of kind of loving text on manhattan and and metropolis Mm. as a a metropolis as a place in the way that one might talk about like the beauty of nature but it's the beauty of the hustle and bustle yeah and yeah it it, it hits all the or hits a lot of the the uh the highlights i guess like rooftops trains Mm. brooklyn bridge new york um, Notably, New, like New York City used to have a ziggurat, which I, I wish that it still did. <laughs> yeah, New York City used to have a lot of stuff, um, and yeah, it's it's cool to see just like old footage of New York City because yeah. it's different. It's cool just to see New York City at a different time. Yeah, like you said, like artfully, artfully composed, mostly like still shots. There's not really any camera movement. I don't think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's nice. I wasn't like that impressed by it i guess i don't know i i I guess i wasn't you know i don't know i don't know if i'm like blown away or whatever but like i i I thought it was very very pleasing to look at yeah it is uh and 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 it brought me into a certain era Mm -hmm. very very well yeah uh we're gonna be seeing more city symphony films uh one of the most famous city symphony films that is going to be coming up uh, is Berlin Symphony of a City, Symphony mm-hmm. of a Great City, something like that. Yeah. Which is, uh, which shares a director with uh, another short that we watched called Opus 1 and Opus 2. Indeed. Um, so wait, you did watch Opus 1 and 2? I did. So did I. Because yeah. there was there was some confusion over when 2 was released. Hmm. Like, I Like couldn't... 21 or 22? Yeah. But I was like, eh, I actually watched all of all of the opuses oh um because they're very short and because i was just like i'm just gonna watch all these um an opus binge yeah because each one is what like 10 minutes long 
Well, the first one's ten minutes. The set, like, Opus Two is like three minutes long. Yeah. Um, yeah, these are uh, animation, sort of like non-narrative, non. I don't know what you would call it. They're like 1920s Windows Media Player visualizers. <laughs> I mean, it is certainly in line with. I mean, this is like the first like modernist thing, like mm. real deal modernist thing that I think that we have yeah. seen. This, this feels is... this feels legitimately avant garde to me. Yes, yeah, more than more so than Manhattan. It like or Manhattan. Uh, it's not like photographs of places or, mm-hmm. or video of places. It is abstract shapes and forms. Yeah, uh, you feel like you are in a museum when you mm-hmm. when you are looking at this movie. <laughs> but also, it feels um, I don't know. It uh, it's very. It definitely needs, I think, music to fully kind of appreciate. Like it feels incomplete without music somehow. Because of the kind of, um, the kind of rhythms of it, and... Yeah. But, uh, very cool. And very, feel very of the, of its time, I guess. Just, like, the, the visual style of it is, feels very... I mean, it, it feels at least tangentially connected to German Expressionism, just in terms of, like, the aesthetic of it, I thought. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about the kind of specific art legacy of what was going on at the time. I mean, it, it feels, you know, I, I wish to talk about these these films. I knew a bit more about mm. like art history and how to talk about right. like abstract art because uh, I kind of don't. You know, <laughs> um, it's like cubist or or something like it. In, I don't know what's that 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 painter that like he has uh, white frames with like red, yellow, and blue just like lines and squares and circles in them. I don't remember that that guy. Yeah, um, it feels very much of this like nineteen twenties, um, you know, movement mm-hmm. um, finally being introduced into film, and this this movie specifically. Um, the director Walter Rutledge, Rutman, um, Rutman, 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 um, Rutman. Um, he talked about how he wanted to apply time to painting. Um, mm. Oh, it, it, it's abstract painting with a temporal element, uh, which is new. You know, it's very yeah. interesting. That's su- that's a super cool way of like thinking about it. And because mm-hmm. I I watched this just thinking oh this is like abstract animation, but the idea that it's a thinking of it as a painting first and then just applying time to it about this is a painting that changes form, which makes sense considering I I know that the way that it was made is uh, Walter Rutman painted I think oil paint on sheets of glass. Mm-hmm. That he would photograph and then wipe the paint off and paint again and, like, move the paint around a sheet of glass and then photograph it. And it became animation. And so it gives it, the, I think, a pretty somewhat unique uh, look and style to it, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's super expressive. If I were to be... Um... You know, if I were to be artsy for a second, I would say, mm-hmm. like, maybe the main emotion behind it would, it feels like yearning, almost. Mm. Um, 
there's there's a lot of this interplay between like harsh jagged shapes that are like mm-hmm. pushing pushing down and oppressing more like flowing loose rounded shapes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's it's very visual. It's very abstract, and yeah. there's there is only <laughs> so much that you can you can uh, get out of it. I suppose. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's you know there's like different shapes and colors and movements. Like yeah, and it changes pretty... it changes enough that it doesn't get like too repetitive i mean they're short also but um this is another great candidate for our hypothetical playlist of silent movies that would be good to put on the background during yeah parties. speaking of putting uh opus one and two on in the background um when i first started watching opus one i immediately thought oh the the end credits of the uh german tv show babylon berlin are definitely inspired by this like the end credits of that show always play over these sort of abstract animations. And I was like, oh, cool. Like, this is what inspired those. And and then I got to Opus 2 and I went, nope, these are literally the end cre- what they use for the end credits. Oh, wow. So it's it's Opus <laughs> 2 and 4 specifically, I think, are the ones that they use for the end credits mm-hmm. for that show. But, um, yeah, it is, like, it is literally those, uh, those two uh, shorts. Wow. Uh, opus opus one uh and two you know they're very similar in what mm-hmm. they're doing uh i would say that opus one probably it, it uses a lot more like repeated imagery mm-hmm. um it's the same animations over and over with new colors and new kind of placement on screen where opus two is a bit more like free flowing and it has like some more kind of stream of consciousness animation maybe mm um but but yeah um that's interesting though i mean yeah definitely um definitely good background which is probably not what you would want to tell somebody who is like i made this art (laughs) (laughs) it's like Um, on the background yeah i mean i think like uh in addition to it just being like visually pleasing i i think it the reason they probably used it in that show is just because it, it does kind of it it feels very signifying of this time period in germany especially of like Mm -hmm. art and expression and like abstract stuff and all that kind of thing so for sure and um this uh director um ended up being a nazi uh, did he i thought i thought he didn't actually i thought it was that he he ended up working on some like propaganda films but he was it, I don't know. I, I couldn't find any any information that he was, like, legit a Nazi or he was just still living in Germany. Because, you know, there's a distinction. I mean, he was making abstract art, and then he worked on Triumph of the Will. Um, I thought, didn't he get, like, fired off of Triumph of the Will, or did I make that up entirely? Uh, he got replaced by Lenny Riefenstahl. I mean, I couldn't find all of the details about yeah. exactly what happened with this, but... It did seem like he was, you know, he was shooting war propaganda movies into the 1940s, mm. um, and he was, you know, he was shooting, he he was involved in Triumph of the Will, and he stayed in Germany, which is kind of a choice. It uh, is. It's sort of because... like, that's a big red flag, is that if you, if you, <laughs> if you, like, you're a, one of these, like, sort of uh, avant-garde or sort of one of these, like, uh... And just any any art artist person living in Germany during the Weimar Republic, Republic is that what it's called? During yeah. Weimar era Germany, and then 
Nazis take over and you're like, this is fine. I'll stay here. But, you know, who knows? They People got families. They can't just up and leave. Like, yeah. sometimes when fascists take over your country, you're just like, shit, I guess I have to deal with this now. <laughs> Wouldn't know what that feels like. Uh, well, I mean, there were a lot of people who did flee Germany, including um, the director of Rhythmus 21. Hans Richter. Hans Richter, who... who made abstract art that was called Degenerate by Adolf Hitler. Um, <laughs> Where and... are all these shapes moving around? I hate this. <laughs> make stuff that makes me look good. Uh, and so Rhythmus 21 is a similar kind of deal. Um, it is uh, not... It's all squares. It's all rectangles. Mm-hmm. It's not... Um, it, there, there aren't any other shapes involved. Different forms of rectangles. Uh I think this one has a lot more, um, it's playing a lot more with, like, scaling things, Mm -hmm. um, and, like, shapes kind of growing and shrinking in different parts of the screen, uh, unlike Opus, it's black and white, uh, it's just black on white or white on black, um, it is, like, it's the simplest, it is, like, the simplest thing you can make with squares and movement kind of it's like yeah. they're squares they change size they move around um it did almost make me feel like this is like the first thing someone makes now in like digital animation they're just like make a sh- make a square have it move around yeah. <laughs> that's like you open <laughs> you open your program and it's like the first thing you do just to like see how the tools work but they were doing this you know hans richter was doing this in through some sort of analog method i'm not sure exactly what it was um, this also feels like it needs music to, like, appreciate. I don't know. It It's called yeah. Rhythmus. It has rhythm to it. It feels like you need music under it. Indeed. I mean, both of these seem very much like, like, if not, they're, if, if they're not trying to, like, directly apply the ideas of music to visual imagery, mm-hmm. then they are things that seem like they should go along with music. Yeah. Uh, the first time th- this opus is like three, three and a half minutes long. Um, and the first time I watched it was on the MoMA's YouTube channel, which does not have sound on it. Mm. Uh, so then I rewatched it again with music. Um, yeah. And it's more pleasurable that yeah. way, for sure. Um, it's both of these, but especially I think Rhythmus 21 reminded me of Saul Bass, who obviously mm. comes much later in time. Um, yeah. But it made me wonder if 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 these were, uh, if like this era of animation was an inspiration to any of his stuff, because um, it it does kind of feel like like the opening of like a Bond movie or something. Not that Saul Bass ever did those, but um, it has that kind of feeling and aesthetic to it. Where I'm like, you could throw credits over this and it would make sense. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this kind of stuff, like it's tough to think about in and of itself. Uh, right, because it's this very like elemental playing with form kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is the kind of thing that you can recognize like as a part of a larger whole in a mm-hmm. lot of other works. You know, it's it's got opening titles that are in front of it, or it's got closing credits that are in front of it, yeah. or um, you know, it's uh, you know you can you can see maybe like for example like the influence of um opus on uh 
like the kind of expressive animation in Ratatouille, uh, where yeah. it, where he is like tasting things and experiencing this like synesthesia, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the kind of stuff that's like used for more like concrete narrative or like functional purposes later. Uh, but right now, it is just modern art, you know. Yeah. The Ratatouille thing is is very astute. I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> like thinking about it now i'm like they, 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 they do have a lot of similarities it's true it's uh it's it's play playful uh playful experimental animation yeah for sure yeah well then i guess we should uh move on to our feature presentation Indeed. and now we're pleased to bring you our feature presentation all right um where do you want to start, Glenn? I feel like two of these have very strong kind of like thematic connections. I guess sure. they, they all kind of do, but I feel like we should start with probably the most famous movie from this year, which, uh, is, which is The Kid. The Kid. By uh, Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> it's been a minute since we've seen anything from Charlie Chaplin because he has been taking his time working yeah. on something more deliberately mm-hmm. not like cranking out a million shorts but uh uh he made a a feature film his first feature film that he directed mm-hmm. uh and i liked it quite a bit uh yeah i, I mean it, it's very charming <laughs> uh it is described right at the top as a picture with a smile and perhaps a tear <laughs> I mean, I will say, I was like, I was like, you can't prime me like that. You can't tell me how I'm gonna feel when yeah. I when this movie. Well, started. it's like it's not saying but, you're gonna cry, but like maybe it could there, happen. There, I mean, there were moments in this movie where I was like, oh, no, no, yeah, you know. <laughs> I don't think I shed uh, any tears, but it, it, you know, it, it. Charlie Chaplin definitely knows how to kind of weaponize uh, adorableness and like tragedy and just make me go, oh no, a thing. No, it's so innocent. Don't hurt it. Yeah, he Which, did that I mean, with a dog before, and now he's doing it with a human child. <laughs> yeah, th- I mean, this one definitely leans into uh, drama and sentimentality more than yeah. anything that we have seen from from him so far. It's possible that he's yeah. played with this a little more in shorts of his that we haven't watched, but but um, I I feel like a dog's life and like the immigrant and things like that definitely. Were, felt like they were comedies first that sort of had this sort of underlying drama or sen- sentimentality to them. Whereas this feels yeah. like that is the foreground. That is like the main thing he's trying to do with this one is to like get people's emotionally, you know, get get people really emotionally invested. For sure. And I mean like that, his earlier stuff was extremely gag heavy, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and this like has bits, it has gags, but like they are pretty much all in service of the narrative um which i mean honestly i think that this is i think that it's less funny than some of his earlier stuff but Mm -hmm. i think that it's almost an evolution because um uh the way that silent keaton lloyd chaplin shorts tended to work is let's find a situation ring every possible gag out of the situation until we're just so done and then move on to the next thing you know uh and this one it doesn't the scenes don't overstay their welcome Mm -hmm. uh the gags feel uh natural in the in the scenes themselves um and the focus is on the narrative 
rather yeah. than bits. Yeah. Which, it's, that does feel like how his shorts have been kind of moving. They've been kind of moving in this direction already. But mm-hmm. this is definitely the most... This one, it, it, it feels like there's been a, a full switch from, like, gags with an underlying narrative. Whereas this is, like, all narrative first. Like, all the gags in this feel pretty standard at this point in silent comedy, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. He's not trying to innovate in gags like I think that Buster, uh, Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd are. Yeah, both of them are, like, literally throwing themselves out of windows. Uh, <laughs> being like, what what crazy stuff can we do? And Charlie Chaplin is like, no, pathos. Pathos is what <laughs> we've we got to learn how to love. <laughs> yes, exactly. Part of it is just the fact that this movie is very old and its its sensibilities are as such. But it, it, at times it was a little like, all right, calm down. A little cloying, maybe. Maybe, yeah. You put a, a child crying on screen and it's going to tug the heartstrings a little bit. Like, you know. Did you watch the um, original 1921 version, or did you watch the 70s re-edit that Chaplin did? I hope I watched the original. I tried to make that distinction um, and find the original version of it. So I hope that's the one I watched. I uh, did not realize until after I had watched it that I watched the the, Mm. the re-edit, which um, is... It's it's got like ten fifteen or so minutes shaved off of it. Um, hmm. It is uh, was to like remove some of the cloying sentimentality. Apparently, huh? Uh, Interesting. The, the the version that I watched was on uh, was the Criterion release, which uses music that Chaplin composed mm-hmm. uh, for this mu- movie um, later on, um, and then it also is using an edit that he. Uh, lucas himself into oh, to, uh, I, I think i watched the movie. same one that you did because i think i watched the criterion one also and it makes me that it makes me want to go back and find the original edit of it yeah me too yeah. the original edit is more like an hour and like 10 15 minutes and mm. this one is like 50 something minutes yeah, yeah just shy of an hour um that, that that said i mean i it kept along in a nice clip Mm-hmm. Um, which is yeah. maybe a factor of the re-edit, but yeah. you know, I feel like a lot of these, as I was talking about earlier, like the structure, of a lot of these is like one thing, do it all the way, and then another thing, do it all the way. Mm-hmm. And this one is like we're moving through this story, not like a huge amount happens, but like it is always kind of moving forward instead mm-hmm. of staying in one place at a time. Yeah, there's definitely a bit of this sort of like we're gonna kind of do multiple jokes out of a single thing there's like the scene of them making breakfast in in the sort of like attic apartment there's mm-hmm. the the all the stuff with their whole grift of breaking windows and then having the tramp go around and replace the windows that's like most of the gags in this whole movie are like those two things mm-hmm. they still have this the sensibilities of like late teens early 20s silent comedy the titular kid who is named oh, what's his name in the movie john john is played by jackie coogan who continued to act later in life and actually his uh so all, all like all the earnings he made as a child actor after like he did a bunch of other movies as a as a little kid he's good in this He's very good. Yeah, he's he's like good at making pancakes. He's good at crying. He's good at all all the stuff. 
<laughs> so like all the money he made was just taken by his mostly take taken and spent by his mother and stepfather which led yeah, to a boy. big a big legal case that led to the establishment of a lot of like early child labor laws for actors and how mm. like you have to put their earnings like in a trust so that their parents can't just spend all of their money that they make you have to put it in a trust there are no battles for money yes exactly so that's a, I don't know, interesting historical tidbit attached mm. to this movie yeah, I don't, I don't know how much we want to talk about, like, how this movie possibly was influenced by, like, Charlie Chaplin's own life. Because anytime I talk about Charlie Chaplin's own life, I'm like, ugh, I hate this. <laughs> and, like, I don't know, it's, I, I am finding it increasingly kind of, like, hard to separate the two. Just because, like, it, mm. he, what, wrote, directed, edited, composed, he did, like, everything on this movie. Mm-hmm. so it's like it is very much a product of him as a person yeah and like so much of what i read about him as a person is like incredibly off-putting <laughs> i don't know there's ugh. at least he doesn't like hitler <laughs> no that's true yeah that is <laughs> which is more than you could say about a lot of people in the 20s time. you're either a creep or you're later into hitler and yeah yeah and charlie chaplin was a creep <laughs> firmly in the creep camp I don't know if you know this. One of the, um, one of the like angels. Mm-hmm. There's, I believe she's credited as as like a seductive angel. Oh, the the vamping one. Yeah, yeah. the vamping one is played by a twelve year old actor that he oh, later no. that he later married. Oh man. Yeah, married when I think she was like sixteen and he was like thirty six. Oh, that was her. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Gross. Very gross. Oh boy. He had a child that died after three days in 1919 that possibly might have, yeah. like, influenced him making this movie. It happened shortly before this movie started filming. Yeah. Um, but that, too, is, like, ugh. That whole story is also really gross and upsetting. And just, like, <laughs> Charlie, stop being a fucking creep. <laughs> but it's, like, because his movies are so charming. And so, like, kind of innocent, you know what I mean? Like, they're not, uh-huh. there's there's not much edge to them, you know? It's right. like, his own creepiness doesn't really come through in the work. Yeah. But then it's like, I do, like, any research about it. I'm just like, oh, no! I hate this. It's, it's, it's very tricky. I mean, you know, this is a question that has no easy answer of the separation yeah. Yeah. from the art and the artist. Um, but... I think it's uh, the conclusion that I've come to lately is that uh, it's fairly safe to assume that pretty much anyone in Hollywood is a scumbag. And uh, and then, yeah, uh, that's that's kind of the conclusion I've come to. It's just like they're all bad. (laughs) Yeah. And then you have to, like, move on from that point and say, like, how do I deal with the fact that somebody involved in this movie is a scumbag? Yeah, because it's the olden times and everything was worse back then yeah um but yeah the the, the kid fun movie (laughs) yeah uh, yeah apart from all of this digression about uh charlie chaplin's uh personal life uh i i found this movie very charming and i i felt like it um grabbed me in ways that a lot of others uh have not Mm -hmm. um i felt swept up you know yeah another movie with kids um (laughs) yep 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 one of those classic segues is the Phantom Carriage uh-huh. by Victor Sostrom, 
A new a new Sostrom picture. A new Sostrom picture. We haven't talked about him in a minute. Yeah. And uh, I'm just going to get this right out of the way. I hated this movie. Oh, boy. <laughs> I thought it was awful. <laughs> I don't think I hated it, but it is. Um, yeah, it. I feel like my problems with this movie are similar to my problems with the kid. Not the, like, Chaplin stuff, but, like, in terms of, like, how how much it's kind of beating you over the head with what it's trying to, like, get you to feel. Yeah. Um, this movie is just, like, is very, very dour. It's so... It's and dour so in, sentimental. like... It's, it's dour so... in unoriginal ways, it felt yeah. like to me. Like, originality, whatever. But, like, it firmly sits in one of these weird old silent movie subgenres that we've discovered. Not discovered, but, like, come across a lot. And this is the sort of, like, man drinks alcohol and is mean uh, subgenres. <laughs> Like this, this feels like one of the like temperance movies from from earlier. This years. movie had me had me kind of looking up like Swedish temperish, temperance laws, mm. um, and there there like pretty there was like a movement for temp. I don't know how involved Victor Victor uh, Schuström was in uh, in this, but uh, there was a temperance movement that was gaining steam in Sweden around this mm. time. Uh, leading up to a pretty big referendum or something like that uh, a couple years later uh, that ended up like narrowly failing. Um, mm. But uh, there were laws that were put in place about like alcohol content levels that could be put in like certain drinks in Sweden. Mm. This is very much like a, if you drink alcohol, you'll fall down a bad path. If you fall down a bad path, you'll drag everyone down with you. The ghost of Christmas way future is going to show you uh, the, the the problems with your ways, right? This is this story, it's based on a novel, a Swedish novel, but it all feels very post-Dickens. Post, yeah, it's, um, it's very Christmas carol-y, for sure. Yeah. Um, to me, I, I had... It had been a long time... Uh, it wasn't until like maybe two two or three years ago that I saw It's a Wonderful Life, and mm. I was surprised by how good of a movie it is. I kind of thought really it was going to be yeah. sentimental trash, and this is what I expected. This is what I mm. expected when I when I was <laughs> <laughs> thinking that it was. This is like it. What It's a Wonderful Life. What, it's like a bad version of It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, yeah. It's a Wonderful Life is really really good. Um, this. Uh, I don't know. I didn't hate it. Like, I think it's it's technically very accomplished. Like, Victor Sjöström knows what he's doing, you know? I think the performances are not terrible. It's re- it's really just, like, kind of the writing of it and the kind of entire... The the story it's telling is, is felt to me uninspired and also kind of preachy. Yeah. Yeah. The general idea is that uh, there's a guy named David Holm who used to be a nice husband and father, he falls into drinking, he becomes a bad person. He becomes a real piece uh, of shit. <laughs> and then he dies. <laughs> right, he dies, and there's all this, like, stuff about, like, if you're the last person to die uh, at the end of the year, then you have to become the Grim Reaper for the next year. And the Grim for the Grim Reaper, every night feels like a hundred nights. So uh, it's effectively like a kind of hundred-year sentence yeah so he is the last person to die on, on new year's eve 
and then he happens to know the person who was the last person to die. Yeah, which right is the guy that told him the story about how if you die, you become the Grim Reaper. Yeah, and so he's just kind of going on a memory tour through uh, his downfall in many mm-hmm. ways and trying to like plead like trying to trying to come up with some justification for why he shouldn't die and shouldn't be cursed like this um and a number of people try and help him and then he he spurns them and coughs on them with tuberculosis he's yeah. a real <laughs> he's a real piece of yeah. work yeah he, he he gets he gets sort of like taken in and cared for by this uh salvation army woman volunteer um who like fixes his jacket and like gives him a bed to sleep in and is like we got you like you're falling on hard times but like you're all good and then he wakes up and like rips his jacket apart again and then coughs in her face giving her consumption or galloping consumption as it's referred to in the intertitles and he's like fuck you i hate everybody and it's like what the hell dude So this is the kind of guy we're dealing with who then has to get redeemed at the end. And I, I don't know, I, I didn't feel like he deserved it. I was like, no, this this guy should just die. He shouldn't have to be the Grim he should have to be the Grim Reaper for the next year. Yeah. Like yeah. I I don't feel like he at all learned his lesson or got what, you know. Right? Because he he has this sort of like cyclical thing of like abusing the people around him where like people yeah. will help him and he like will go back to just like stealing their money or like going and getting trashed and i don't know i was just like i don't feel like this movie really earned his redemption arc yeah this movie reminded me of barry linden in a certain way which is like like barry linden was a movie that i found myself dissatisfied with at the end because it's like a three hour long movie where it's like this guy is a shitbag and then he continues to be a shitbag and then at the end he is still a shitbag <laughs> But at least in Barry Lyndon, he's kind of a fun shitbag. Like he's he's like he's like doing like con artist stuff and like yeah. just fighting people and like going to war and things. Um, and I feel like even in that movie, it does feel like Barry Lyndon is is left like soulless at the end. Like he is mm-hmm. he continues to be a piece of shit, but he is like the most unhappy person alive. Um, whereas this, it was just like no, don't. He should just have to be the Grim Reaper at the end. Yeah. My initial disappointment with this movie was to do with the Grim Reaper stuff. And Mm. then my later disappointment was just the whole story and everything. But, like, I was like, this is called The Phantom Carriage. I want more spooky stuff. Like, give me something spooky. And, like, it is not... It's not doing it, you know? Mm. It, it, like, it shows you... It has some scenes where people are uh, superimposed. They, you know, they look ghostly with double exposure. Mm -hmm. Um, Great you know <laughs> but like uh i yeah i don't know i really wanted something darker and something um uh less schmaltzy for mm. sure yeah i mean this movie is very dark it's very grim but it it doesn't it's not particularly spooky there's a bit of the ghost stuff kind of early on of the yeah. phantom the titular phantom carriage sort of going like going to different planets like ooh, it's it's in the ocean it can go to the ocean because it's a ghost carriage yeah um, but I don't know if if Georges Méliès made this movie, it would be. So oh much my better. god! Oh, I mean, yeah, you, you know, know what I'm saying? Be, yeah, <laughs> the Georges Méliès Phantom Carriage movie would be a wild ride for sure. <laughs> that would be on the on the poster, <laughs> a wild yeah. ride on the Phantom Carriage. <laughs> exactly. But there is another movie that we watched that is also about 
death and rebirth and such mm. and spooky stuff that yeah uh is better i thought yes yeah it's a low yeah. bar but yes it is yeah. it is it is i like this one which is destiny destiny directed by fritz long the first time we're covering a fritz long film i think yeah yeah he's he's been doing stuff for a couple of years but uh this is the first time we've been able to to yeah. get our hands on one of his pictures maybe the most famous like german director of this time period i would say so i mean he directed so. maybe the most famous movie of the 1920s so i don't know yeah it's, it's, he's up there yeah i don't know where, where where to start on this one well um there are a couple of young lovers riding in a carriage into ah, a town a carriage um yeah true just, just a regular and, carriage this time no and, phantom they they pick up uh they pick up a mysterious hitchhiker um who happens to be death incarnate and they they bring him into town uh the stranger as he is often called mm. um he decides to he he buys a segment that was initially planned to be an annex to the cemetery and he's like I'm going to pay you lots of gold to to buy this so they get they grant him a 99 year lease on on this land uh then he builds an extremely tall wall all around it with no entrances and all the village the villagers are i don't know very they're like who is this weirdo and why did he build this this giant (laughs) enclosure in our town and eventually uh the young lovers the 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 man the fiance their fiancés he they're they're at a bar and the stranger is with them and then all of a sudden he just like disappears and walks away with the stranger and it turns out that since that stranger is death he has just died uh kind of randomly the woman is is trying to trying to track him down and eventually she realizes what has happened and basically like attempts to drink poison to like mm-hmm. meet with him and uh, meet with death and try and plead her case to bring her man back and then what follows is these kind of uh I don't know, almost Faust-esque kind of... Uh, is Faust is Faust the, the one where the... In Faust, do they, they do the fiddle thing, or is that something else? I don't know. Faust is making a deal with the devil and it carrying a terrible price. The competition with the devil kind of thing. The competition with the devil, I don't necessarily think is a Faustian thing. Mm-hmm. Some kind of devil story, but... yeah. Well, yeah, so once she, she does meet with Death in his sort of death castle. Um, it's like a candle realm. It's very cool. Yeah, it is very <laughs> cool. Um, and he shows her three candles that are about to go out. And it's like, if you can prevent these deaths, I will I will grant your your betrothed's life yeah. back. And and unlike the devil, like, Death is like... like sympathetic you know? definitely like he, my hands are tied you know i'm just here to do do god's work basically he's, sort and of he's like, like i don't i don't enjoy it yeah <laughs> he's like he's i don't enjoy like, ushering people into the afterworld yeah. it's like it's just a job for me you know but so he he gives her this sort of thing where she can i don't really the the mechanics of this i was a bit confused by but each of the three candles is this sort of nested sort of sub story yeah, so there's like a kind of framing story that takes up maybe like a third to a half of the movie, and then there are like three vignettes where mm-hmm. the the 
which I think is interesting in that, like, you know, she's in this, after she's kind of entered death's realm, she's, like, beyond space and time. So, like, these vignettes are um, in, like, seemingly ancient China and uh, it's a kind of Middle Eastern country, Mm -hmm. uh, undetermined, I believe, and uh, Venice. Uh, And the two young lovers are playing young lovers who are, like, fated to die or yeah. for the with the, the man fated the to man die. is always fated to die and they're they're played by the same actors through all yeah. all four storylines yeah it's kind of cloud atlas style i also wrote down some cloud atlas stuff going on <laughs> um i think it works better Especially here than it does in cloud face. atlas well yeah true but uh it's, it's a cool conceit though of like keeping the same actors yeah. throughout for sure. I, I wasn't 100% sure um, that it was the same actors for a minute, but I was kind of glad to realize that it was, because I think yeah. that works very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, See, so it's it's almost kind of an anthology movie with, like, these three, like, tragic romances kind of in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the sort of wrap-up at the end. It is sort of very loosely based on, kind of inspired by a Hindu legend. Uh, the story of Savitri and Satyavan, which I was not familiar with, but I, I read the Wikipedia page of, which it, it doesn't really follow it super closely. It's it's mostly kind of the idea of a man being fated to die and his wife slash betrothed being like, death, no, I will not, I will not, this will not stand. And it has a bit of the sort of like nested story stuff in there also. Mm-hmm. Um, it also really reminded me of uh, the story of Orpheus and Eurydice from Greek mythology sure. of yeah. like going to meet death to like argue for someone's life. And uh, I don't know, it was a cool movie. Yeah, yeah. I think I-, I liked how it was able to. Phantom Carriage is a very blunt movie. The Kid is mm-hmm. a is a fairly blunt movie. I feel like this is able to like examine some themes in some kind Mm -hmm. of a a complex way you know it's taking this like one story and examining it from multiple different angles yeah uh which i i thought was like you know it made it rich in a way right because yeah in each of the stories the the man does die like she doesn't ever save him and even she fails yeah she fails the the task that death has given her and even the sort of happy ending at the end is they're both dead but happy in the afterlife yeah. Which is different from, like, the, the Hindu legend is, like, no, they both get to live. Um, and then, like, Orpheus Rudisi is, like, it doesn't work. <laughs> Orpheus messes it up. Yeah. Whereas this is, like... Spoilers for Orpheus. Yeah. Oh, man. I've been really... I've been... I was just about to get to that one, you know? <laughs> so it's, like, it does have a happy ending, but it is, like... The happy ending is that they're both dead at the end. They're both together, but sort yeah. of in a different realm. Yeah, after she fails this task, uh, she comes back to death, and he's like, look, I'm trying to do you a favor here. If you can find somebody who still has life left in them to, to sacrifice, right? Uh, then I can bring your man back. So she just, like, wakes back up, she and then she just runs at, around town going, will you die for me? Will you die for me? Will you die for me? Uh, and everybody's weirded out by her. <laughs> Everyone is like, no, no, thank you. Even people like <laughs> an old folks home, like a medieval old folks home, 
and they're like oh we're so tired of life and this this is just like a burden of being alive and like i wish yeah. we would just die already and she comes in and, and like, she lights any, up anyone want to anyone want to die for me and they're like no get out of here you creep <laughs> and so that doesn't work and then she finds a a, a burning building and decides that she needs to save a child that is stuck inside and that she she can't find someone to to die in her place. So yeah, so so she ends up just uh dying and then yeah. she meets death and he's like, "Well, yeah, it worked out. Now you guys yeah. can just chill together in the afterlife." Yeah. Uh and yeah, and then the movie ends. And it is <laughs> like a um Phantom Carriage is edgy, right? Like it shows like a guy like pulling a gun out of a desk and like killing himself. Mm. Which was, I, I did actually really like the way that that scene was framed and shot. I thought that was, like, a very yeah. well-made scene. Yeah, that was good. But I feel like this movie is, like, it's grim, it's dark, it's macabre, you know? Yes, Like, yeah. Phantom Carriage is too religious and schmaltzy to be macabre. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a good distinction, actually, of, like, what works about this one that doesn't really work about Phantom Carriage. This one feels a bit more kind of... Um, yeah, its its worldview is a little bit darker, I guess. It feels a little bit less. This movie felt to me it is a very romantic movie in mm-hmm. in both the sort of like more literal sense and also in the sort of greater artistic sense. Mm-hmm. And part of that is that it's like, oh no, these two characters are happy at the end. They're just also dead. <laughs> the 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 idea that like tragedy is romantic, I guess. Hmm. Yeah. This, the the phantom carriage is post dickens this one's post uh shakespeare maybe yeah yeah it, it feels mu- mu- much more shakespearean um it's also got a lot of sword fights which is fun yeah there's like a lot of action in this movie too like there's like chases and fights and climbing up towers and things like that and th- there are some um there are some kind of cool effects in this especially in the mm. uh sequence that's set in china uh because there's um it involves like a, a kind of sorcerer um and so there's like a scene which i thought was it almost like got me for a second like how how it was done the scene of um uh like a guy like the sorcerer creating like an army of like two inch tall people uh, mm. and and they're like walking yeah. out from under his feet i thought that was really well done uh, which and i then... can only imagine they just built giant feet <laughs> yeah and had people walk through them but it, yeah it it works really well the set design in this is pretty cool too especially yeah. i really liked death's candle realm yeah that's sort of the like death's whole realm is i think the most this movie gets into kind of like expressionism mm-hmm. i've seen this listed as a german expressionist movie and i don't know how much i agree with that it's sort of eh, yeah it feels kind of like Suna prague where it's like it's almost that but not quite yeah and it, it has a bit of the kind of like fairy tale setting like it mm-hmm. the sort of framing story doesn't really feel like it's set in any one time necessarily it's sort of this generic fairy tale kind of place Which we see from a lot of german stuff it seems yeah like a, a lot of german movies seem to be set in this indeterminate time period right which I mean, I mean, we'll get to it later, but that's that's one of my favorite things about uh, Sunrise, the Murnau movie. Hmm. Yeah, another another thing this reminded me of, like a, a newer movie that came out just like last year, is uh, the George Miller movie Ten Thousand Years of Longing. 
which also is sort of like nested stories taking place in different time periods and different parts of the world. Um, also makes, and both are sort of about like, that movie is very much about like, what is storytelling? What does it mean? And I feel like this movie is less about that, but it's the kind of narrative structure of it is somewhat similar. Yeah. I didn't see it, but uh, nice. Cool movie. Louis Brunel, who will soon direct En Chien en Lou later this decade, has cited this movie as like a big inspiration and like the thing that he saw that made him want to make movies. Mm-hmm. It's, there's a quote I have from him. Something about this film spoke spoke to something deep in me. It clarified my life and vision of the world, which is like, oh, okay. Yeah, wow. What, what a movie for that to happen with. <laughs> the figure of death in this movie is like a, a man dressed in black with a big, wide-brimmed hat, mm-hmm. which I have heard is a like recurring thing that people see when they're either like close to death or if they're experiencing like sleep paralysis like it's a very it's a big thing with like people who have sleep paralysis they will see uh-huh. a, a shadowy figure in a wide-brimmed hat like out of the corner of their vision which is like it's like a recurring thing is is the hat man i saw a short film about it at a festival last year oh the hat man okay so i would i just saw a meme that was talking about how if you take too much Benadryl, you'll see the hat man. <laughs> <laughs> but um, apparently that is a thing that uh, when Fritz Lang was a child, he was he was suffering from a fever and was like, had a fever dream of this like figure of death, dark figure of death approaching him with the hat. Wow. And I think that's crazy that that is like just a thing that people see sometimes. Like uh, yeah, what? It, what is it about no a wide-brimmed hat that just like is universally people are like creepy? I don't like this. This is death. <laughs> yeah, interesting depictions of death in both of these movies. Uh, the Phantom Carriage goes with the more uh, traditional yeah, like, psych guy. Yeah, uh, and and speaking of influence, um, Phantom Carriage was a huge influence on Ingmar Bergman. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he loves Phantom Carriage, which I don't get. Uh, but he made a whole uh, movie about like the making of Phantom Carriage. Oh, really? Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's like a television movie by Ingmar Bergman, uh, which I feel like would be worth checking out at some point. Yeah, yeah. I have some other notes about Fritz Lang as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, just because there's like weird, <laughs> weird stuff with him. <laughs> he was a weird guy. Uh, he might have murdered his first wife. We don't know. She died mysteriously, and there's, like, no... I can't find any information about it on the internet. It's, like, all unsourced, like, stuff. But there's, like, one article about, I think, uh, like, because of the fame of his later movies, people have sort of dug into, like, his his life, and they found that, like, why did his first wife die so mysteriously? And it's like, uh, we don't know. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, he was, he was an Austrian director who's, uh, his father was an architect, um, which explains, I think, a lot about mm. a lot of his movies. Uh, he's Intense studied... set design and, yeah. uh, and building architect, inventive architecture, I suppose. And, and he started studying engineering, uh, in college before switching to the arts. So that's like a lot of his background. Uh, his mother was Jewish, even though she converted to Catholicism. 
Uh, and so, yeah, he was he was very much not about Nazism, super not into <laughs> the, it. The crucial thing the the crucial thing that we need to know about every German director from this time is: yeah. did they leave Germany or not leave Germany? Yeah. <laughs> no, he he got out of Germany pretty. I think he left in in thirty three or like just before. Mm-hmm. Even though I think his his second wife later became a Nazi and they broke up because of that. Fritz Lang is a a, a much more he is like a, a very established like anti fascist director. Mm-hmm. That's like I a, mean yeah a big I... thing with him. And I feel like even in this movie, there's like a strong kind of like anti authoritarian streak. Like in mm. all of the sort of like tragic romances, there's a, there's always this sort of like true authoritarian figure that is like keeping people down kind of there's always like a some kind of person in charge some ruler who's like ruling with an iron fist sort of Um, very true yeah i mean i and i would consider metropolis to be like a complete like a positively marxist film Mm -hmm. yeah um and he was also one of the german directors from this time period who fought in world war one and was like this is terrible why did we do this yeah um which is always i feel like that's any german film we're gonna see from now until much later is gonna be like yeah that's what this is about (laughs) this is about people ruminating on death because they fought world war (laughs) one until the moment where it's like we love hitler don't we (laughs) yeah well we got we got a little ways to get get to there so what i mean one thing that i that that i didn't include uh writing on in the news because we don't want to talk about hitler too much in the news is that this was the year that he became uh the fuhrer of the uh of the nazi party oh okay what's that's like what they gave him a title who cares i mean yeah but he's like you know getting power it's it's beginning but it's like it's it's not going to be for another what 12 years that he actually like takes over fully so i'm like eh, let it let it breathe yeah. Let's talk yeah. about all the cool stuff that was happening in Germany instead. Indeed. And and there there is a lot of cool stuff happening in Germany yeah. at this moment aside from brown shirts and yeah. Nazi violence. Although it is it is kind of nuts how that was like immediately following World War 1. That was already like a thing. Yeah. It just took 10 years to like to, for them to take over. And this was the year that the Italian fascist party was established as well. Oh god. <laughs> 1920s. It is, it's, yeah, for every, for every cool thing, there's like 12 just awful, awful, awful things that happened. Yeah. But hey, the movies were fun. Yeah. I was going to say, do you have anything else? I guess one last note that I have on this movie that I thought was interesting is a lot of these movies have been, um, a lot of movies that I've seen from around this point are making like very, like very determined distinctions between their reels. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they they have chapter headings. Yeah, exactly. Like movies, movies are often referred to in the press as like a it's like a five reel, it's a six reel, yeah. you know. Uh, as six a glorious reels of of, yeah. of thrills and chills. Yeah, <laughs> as yeah, it's like a measurement of length rather than telling you like how long it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe because it was not fully defined how long how long long it is because it right. depended on the projection speed. Um, and even the length of reels, I think, wasn't necessarily a defined thing. Yeah. But a lot of reels, a lot of a lot of pictures, especially European ones, um, seem to be having these kind of like 
end of this chapter beginning mm-hmm. of this chapter yeah. at the at the end of beginning of each reel which uh certainly makes a projectionist job a lot easier <laughs> this one i thought it was notable that it was referring to them as verses instead of chapters yeah, yeah. um trying to go for like maybe like an epic poem kind of yeah thing, I and think. i think it even at the start of it it uh there one of the intertitles at the very beginning is like a it describes it in that it's like a song of tragedy or something like, you know it puts it in sort of musical terms who knows if that's even just like a translation thing like if that's yeah. just the english language release of it i don't know yeah i know like i feel like when um an original english language production uses some very strange wording i can like hone in on that and laugh mm-hmm. at that but like when it's a translation it's hard to really know like right. you know yeah uh i i can't i can't laugh at um at them saying funny words because it's just up to the translators <laughs> yeah those wacky english translators in the 1920s <laughs> uh do you have anything else on this movie uh nope i think it was my favorite of the year though destiny mm. uh i like destiny a lot but i uh if we're going into our favorite section i would probably put the kid as mm. my favorite that's good i mean good one, one of each yeah um We've got some diversity in our favorites man i like i like when, I, I like when we pick different things yes yeah it, yeah it's a little it's a little boring when we when we're like oh this one was obviously the best yeah. <laughs> man yeah so we as you can probably see from the running time this is a much leaner episode than we than we usually do uh because we're kind of gearing up for 1922 which is gonna be a doozy yeah it's a lot of stuff a lot of big hitters 21 kind of feels like a bit of an off year anyway just like there's been a couple yeah. of these like big releases that we talked about and then a lot of stuff like there's so many silent shorts that we didn't talk about you know there's like a bunch of buster keaton shorts a bunch of harold lloyd shorts like a bunch of like little dramas and things uh, so yeah. many things we're at a point now where there's, we're... A, there's an asta nielsen hamlet that looks interesting from this year um yeah i feel like when we first started this we were like yeah these are every movie that still survives from this year we watched because they're all three minutes long and there's only 10 yeah. of them yeah and now it's like we can cover a very very small portion of what was actually released in any given yeah. year um, we try to be representative and we try yeah. to um look toward novelty getting a a a proper sense of what was happening at that time i watched another harold lloyd short just because i wanted to because i enjoyed high and dizzy so much and it's another one of him like hanging off of tall things (laughs) the thing that he became most famous for yeah which i think is i think that might be 23 is safety last so we're, we're we're gearing up for that definitely cover that one yeah i guess that wraps it up yeah nice Uh, compact one in Ugh. the can yeah feels good it does it, it really it honestly really does it's, <laughs> ma- it's making me wonder if we should maybe like scale back but also i want to cover everything so yeah. yeah yeah uh but i hope you enjoyed this uh this nice short episode that's the length of a normal the episode of a normal podcast uh <laughs> and yeah i guess that'll about do it um yeah. so glenn i will see you next year in 1922 see you next year